Hey everybody, this is Brendan Hausler. We've got a great podcast for you today with Tom Bell, where we talk about two big training topics, sweet spot training and VLA max metric. And you can read the chapters below, but really looking at sweet spot, who should use it, why is it overprescribed, and some other big picture thoughts on it. And then VLA max, the metric, how is this actually measured? What is it actually measuring? And how do you practically apply this to your training and racing, especially since it's not as available, or I should say easily available of a metric to get your hands on, whereas there's a myriad of ways to figure out your FTP. VLA max is not the same scenario. So Tom, thanks for doing this. Let's get right into it. So to start the official podcast, we'll start it now. I mean, we have been talking about VLA max and different things that people are talking about for training. Do we want, how do we want to approach this? Because one thing that does fit into the conversation that I always, I've gotten this, this uh, reputation for hating sweet spot, which I don't. And I know you don't, we both have said variety is important and there's a place for any type of training, depending on the athlete's physiology, what they're doing, what they're training for. I just hate the overprescription of it of, hey, every Tuesday, Thursday, go ride at 95% and we're going to raise your FTP. And that's just not the – a new athlete could increase your FTP that way. It's just not the most optimal way. Um, I'm trying to think how our conversation started circling around VLA Max. and Do we want to talk about Sweet Spot in this podcast and maybe some other options to grow FTP? That would actually be interesting. Or do we want to – trend it towards VLA max or intertwine the two what's kind of what sounds good to you I would say probably intertwine the two I think there's some um I suppose they're different they're different things aren't they I suppose one's kind of more of like an intensity sort of band the other's like a, a supposed kind of uh key metric to track but um here's a great question that I know people that follow evoke would love to hear what Tom Bell has to say and, we, and I want to put this out there too. When would you prescribe Sweet Spot? What do you think Sweet Spot is good for? And then I'll add mine. And then because you really got me more into, without being a spoiler, like over-unders. And I've, you know, I don't want to like jump the gun here, but, you know, we've talked about progression. And I think one thing of athletes struggle with is these, blocks of training it has to be a vo2 max block i'm like well what are you going to do when you're done with your block they're like well then i'm going to shift to ftp I'm like well what's the ftp block and it, everything becomes so structured whereas you know when i was self-coaching one thing i started kind of getting the groove of of was more variety and less of this like okay if i do three by ten then i need to do three by twelve and three by fifteen it just didn't make mm -hmm. sense to me and then when we linked up you're very much like, hey, we're going to do a lactate clearance and a VO2 max, and then we're going to do a different lactate clearance. We're working the system. We're not just working this like arbitrary number of you did X watts for Y minutes. Now let's add a few minutes. Then let's add a few watts. You know, it was much more free flowing, which to me as an athlete was very uh, refreshing, but also I think it makes more sense. It's just harder to teach athletes to do that it's like when i think of well why do people teach it that way it's because it's a way to put concrete numbers on things as opposed to just sending an athlete out into the wild and be like well see how you do on this lactate clearance 
and then adjust. It's like, well, what adjustments, adjustments do I make? Um, so kind of a lot of tangents in there, but um, what do you think Sweet Spot is good for? Um, well, I think it, I, th I think it's, it's like anything it fits, it's, it fits into like a wider, um, a wider training program where at some point you want to, um, spend some time at basically all intensities, because if you're in an endurance event, by the end of the race, you're using all muscle fiber types. Um, so I think even if you, if you get, try and get too specific with the training and just say, like, for instance, um, if you're doing like criteriums and mountain bike cross country races, you might think that all you need to do is short, short, hard efforts of 10 seconds and follow that with a coast around a corner and then repeat. And you, you might think if, if you follow the kind of specificity principle too closely, um, and don't think about sort of how everything builds on top of one another, then that might just be the ultimate training. That's all you do five days a week, but we just know it's not that simple. And there are, um, other ways, plenty of ways that the body creates creates energy and all this kind of stuff um so sweet spot i think is i mean one thing it's definitely got going for it is that athletes enjoy it generally speaking um it's that nice kind of um blend of feel well they call it comfortably hard don't they uh, mm -hmm. quite quite often um so it's 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 an intensity that you can do for a fairly long period of time and feel like you're pushing on and doing some really productive work which which athletes like to feel that they're doing productive work um but that's so what i hate the, about it no but i was about to say that that might be it's sort of a you know you know um uh con uh, as well as a pro um uh -huh. but but i i think i think one thing it is potentially good for is you if we're talking sort of muscle fiber types you've got like type one type type 2a so the in-between kind of oxidative fast twitch fibers and then type 2x i think tell people what those are because most people know fast twitch slow twitch put in so, so yeah if you were to if you were to look at it in that way you've got like the slow twitch fibers then you've got the fast twitch fibers but and and there are lots of different types you could make this spectrum really really wide if you wanted to but if for the sake of simplicity you can look at type 2a fibers and type 2x fibers and the type 2a fibers are have characteristics of fast twitch fibers in that they're um glycolytic and pr produce um, a lot of um, energy quickly but um but but fatigue quickly as well the type 2a fibers have more sort of mitochondria and they're 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 sort of an in-between fiber almost um, from slow twitch to fast twitch and that's what people actually uh, that's what researchers think they are there are there are fi a muscle fiber that's somewhere in between transitioning to a you know from a fast twitch to a slow twitch or from a slow twitch to a fast twitch so you have these kind of in-between fibers and i think if you polarize training too much and you just focus on just long endurance and then just really high intensity i think you do sometimes there you do need kind of this cross this ability to cross over um into different into using different muscle fiber types and if you miss out that that middle section that kind of those kind of in-between fibers i think you can go from being quite efficient uh you know using the slow twitch fibers and then just almost skip the the type 2a bit and go straight to the uh st straight to the um type 2x so i think training those in between fibers ha you know that's that's something to uh, to consider
And it was interesting. I mean, I think the thing that I anecdotally felt and from athletes that I've talked to who either are in Europe and do huge grand fondos where they're, they're climbing something 45 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes long, not as common in the U.S., but like guys who are doing Leadville and climbing an hour and a half, having those tempo or sweet spot efforts where it's the consistent pressure on the pedals, it's almost like that tension that you feel in your muscles. I don't know what the exact physiological word is for that, but like what a researcher would call like tension that you feel from just like gr- not, I don't want to say grinding because people associate that with a low cadence, but like athletes who are, who are doing events like this, or who have done really long climbs, know what I mean? Like, even if you're climbing at an endurance pace after a while, it's just like, man, we're still going, like you don't get to pause. And I think just like you said, when you don't train there, it's really hard to execute that on race day. And I don't think that you need a ton of it, but I think part of it is also mental. It's just, you're on the gas and you're going. And so from that anecdotal feeling myself from talking to other athletes, I still don't love the sweet spot because I think that, and you, you prescribed to me more tempo as opposed to sweet spot because it just has less of the, the fatigue cost. And I still felt like I was getting that kind of what you were referring to as the crossover fibers um, so I think someone could make a case for, Hey, sweet spot, you could use it for this like consistent pressure. Um, but I, yeah, I really do from what you first said, think it's more of a con that athletes think they're working hard and being productive at building FTP from these FTP builders, but it's not achieving that. Um, and you really kind of honed in on one of your blogs of, the best thing I think when the blog is boiled down to you were really teaching people or bringing to light the idea of think of FTP as how much lactate are you producing? How much are you clearing? And that simple, um, I forget how you'd stated it, but that really, that equation, when it gets out of whack, that's when you're like, Oh, I can't pedal at FTP anymore or over. And you, you're forced to pedal easier. And just simplifying that equation is what's going to boost your FTP, not riding at FTP. Yeah, so so that would be looking at yeah, um, I guess lactate threshold, which is very which is very similar to FTP. FTP mm. is essentially the uh, the real world kind of um, expression of you know the, these physiological things like a lactate threshold. So yeah, I think in the in the kind of blog post you're referring to, we're just kind of our, my understanding or our understanding is that. Yeah, the, the lactate threshold is a product of lactate production and lactate elimination or clearance. So you can improve it by producing less lactate for a given power output or, um, uh, and ideally, you know, doing both, um, you can improve your ability to um, move away, you know, that lactate that's, that is produced um, when you're doing a hard effort and shuttle it to muscle fibers that can then use it as a fuel because it's an excellent it's probably the one of the best fuel sources you can have it's a um half broken down sugar molecule so it's uh it's excellent fuel but if you can't if you can't use it and you can't get it to fibers that can use it um then then you, you're not take you're not you know you're not uh uh reaping the benefits of that um and it's important to say here i suppose for 
maybe new listeners or those that aren't sort of into the physiology as much is that lactate is not what's causing fatigue there are there are other metabolites and other signals that happen that that trend with lactate um but it's not the same thing i heard quite an interesting i can't remember who i heard it from but uh, there was an interesting way of putting it where if you'd never heard so as a bit of an analogy or way to understand it if you'd never heard of a fire brigade or the fire engine, uh, you know, the, the fire emergency services. And you went, you drove around and at, at all these buildings you saw that were, you know, they were on fire. You might well think that the fire engine is causing the fire because you see the fire engine, uh, fire engine at all these buildings that have fire going. Whereas actually that fire brigade is there because there's a crisis situation and they're helping out. And lactate is kind of a bit like that it's kind of produced because you know it's there it's almost there to help because it's an additional fuel source when you need fast rapid fuel but uh, you might think because there's high lactate when there's high fatigue that it's causing it directly so that is that is so interesting i never thought about it that way yeah it's like which is a correlation or causation and yeah yeah you know, I was going to make a podcast about this and I think it ties in because I had an athlete who was asking me about, uh, we were talking about VO2 max work and he had said, Hey, you know, if I'm, if, if we're doing VO2 max work and I'm getting too tired, I feel like this might be a place to sub in sweet spot work. What do you think of that? And I was like, well, if you're too tired for VO2 max work, sliding down the prescription to sweet spot you're you're just tired like i would say no like don't do that go finish your ride at endurance rest and then let's retool like what are we actually working on because just lowering the intensity because you're tired you're just drilling yourself more into a hole um and i think that's when i get a, a i really should i've been saying this for like a year i need to keep track of these emails i probably get an email every other week about sweet spot and how it's either burned somebody out how they've done it for the past 18 weeks and they just started going to their first event and they have no overdrive. And because of that first point of you feel like you're working hard, even I had, I don't know if you know the name Jens Reinders who rides for, um, Oh God, top sport. They, I don't think they have a different name. It used to be top sport Vlaanderen, the blue and yellow springs, springs a bell. Yeah. yeah Belgian, Belgian team. team. He's a killer in the classics. Dude is going to be a hitter. Um, and he had said he laughed when sweet spot came up he said man i did sweet spot and i could ride really hard for three hours i went to a bike race and got blown out the back and was like what happened and then he got rid of it and went much more polarized and uh and not to say and, and you've made the point too you know polarized does not mean you never ride in this middle zone it just means the percentages like people have this idea of oh polarized you Oh, I saw you did a tempo ride. You're not polarized. It's like, it's not one session that determines this classification. Um, but I just think, I guess to, to, to round out this conversation on Sweet Spot, I think people need to be thinking more of why are they really doing it? Because if you're telling yourself that you're doing it to raise your FTP, I think this recommendations would be do over-unders and work on that lactate production and clearance equation. Make sure you're doing VO2 max at the highest capacity that you can do it at, which means you need to be well rested and not coming off a sweet spot workout. And then if you're thinking, well, hey, you just said, you know, ride at consistent pressure, 
I personally find I perform better when I do those intervals a little bit fresher than what I would do sweet spot as and ride them at a hundred percent or higher. I mean, I've, when I moved to North Carolina, I had some of those climbs I was doing, I was trying to climb them at like 440, 450 for between 10 to, I think like 15 minutes. And that to me worked better than riding at 95% for half an hour. Um, I don't know. I'm just, you can ride at that, but I just think there's so many better ways to spend your time because it is fatiguing. It's really fatiguing. And I think the, the blinders are on a little bit when, when you're always doing sweet spot, you get used to how it feels and you don't realize how much weaker you are at the really hard stuff. So I don't know. Yeah. There's a, yeah, I, I, I think there's a few things really. I think you said it at the start, you've really got to, the athletes got to really, or the coach has got to really try and understand the needs of the athlete. So their own physiology and then what, what physiology they need to perform in their races. There's going to be some athletes who would benefit from more sweet spot training than, or, uh, um, you know, training at a sweet spot intensity than, than other athletes. So that's a question to be had. Uh, I think you rightly said it's kind of the way it's marketed as like a um, do everything, you know, kind of intensity to spend a lot of time in. That's the really where I, I think we both have the yeah, an issue with it. Um, mm -hmm. It can be it can be very helpful for the specificity of grand fondos and long climbs because that's what you're going to do in the race. So um, having that sort of mental tolerance and and physical tolerance of um you know a, a, an elevated power output probably mm -hmm. at a, a, a fair degree of force you know on the pedals as well you need to spend time doing that to be good at it in in an actual race or event um and um i was trying to think what, what, what was <coughs> the other things i was going to mention um, let me ask you a question on that actually to get your thoughts i was much more of a kilojoule junkie before i met you and you're not as because i was riding endurance rides and trying to ride them probably a little bit too hard than what your style is do you think sweet spot would be good for someone who's going to go do a grand final that's 100 miles and you're going to put out a ton of kjs on that day every once in a while sp sprinkling in these maybe 20 to 30 minute sweet spot efforts so they get used to just that kilojoule output I think so. I, I I don't see why that would be um, you know a bad prescription for someone in that situation. Um, mm -hmm. I think that would be a good you know the the fundamental idea of like uh, training periodization is that you know the training gets more specific as it gets closer to an event. So if that's if that style of riding or that of that spending time at those kind of intensities is specific to the demands of the event and that athlete could. Uh, the, you know, the physiology suggests they need to be stronger in that, in that way, um, then, then that would be ideal training for them at, at some stage in the season. Um, mm -hmm. And we've noticed from doing some kind of actual measured lactate uh, testing with some athletes over a long period of time that you do see that where they're quite efficient, quite efficient, you know, don't, don't, you know, lactate production is pretty low, pretty, oh, lactate accumulation, sorry, is um, pretty low, pretty low, and then it'll just hockey stick over a certain, you know, at a, it, you know, it's got a really sharp rise in the curve after a certain power output's reach. And that might suggest there that they could do with potentially training those individual, uh, sorry, those um, intermediate fibers um, mm. to, to sort of smooth out that curve and not just go from like 
one energy system to another quite quickly. So again, for those for those athletes, that might be a good uh, might be a good prescription. So are you saying that's in within one ride? Like they're riding, they're at one millimole, whatever, and then they get to three and a half, four hours, and it spikes big time. Are you talk? Is that what you were saying? That was uh, so the way I, what I was talking about was more of like a incremental uh, exercise test. So uh, okay, uh, like a lactate, uh, like a actual sort of four, five, six minute um, ramp lactate. Uh, test so it wouldn't yeah, it, yeah it, it. i wasn't specifically talking about a, a long ride but um yeah just in a, in a over sort of increasing that, power output i got gotcha. you yeah, yeah yeah interesting um the other the, i remember the other thing i was going to say actually um as you know a lot of people overestimate their ftp or their lactate threshold or whatever so sometimes you get quite you can you can quite often get a few athletes that think they're riding at sweet spot but actually they're probably right at that threshold um mm -hmm. and uh probably too too close to it and and if you, you know, if you train like that for a, a week or two it might be okay but as you said as you alluded to when you were saying that people email you feeling burnt out you know after four five six weeks of doing this quite a lot that that's you're starting to dig a hole then and you're struggling to recover from one session to another and just putting too much, you know, too much stress on the system. Um, especially if you think you're at 95, 96% of whatever this threshold is. And we know the thresholds move around daily anyway, you know, you could easily be, could easily be flirting with or over that threshold. To be and honest. then it's easy when you're, you know, when you're training by yourself, especially if you're coaching yourself, you're like, what's going on? And your power starts to decline a little bit or the RPE goes up and you're like, well, maybe, maybe I need to be going harder. And it's like, that's when people start to pour gas in the fire and the whole house starts to burn down. And exactly. I've been trying to put on our podcast an athlete told me that I don't need to do this, that I, it, I, I don't want to, it's weird on the podcast. I don't want to like pump coaching, but so I've been trying to say like, hey, have a training buddy. Because I think in those scenarios, your friend is going to be like, yo, man, you've just like, look at your calendar. You've just been riding eight sessions of Sweet Spot. You've been doing this. You're feeling tired. Don't go take a rest. Don't go harder. And I think it's just, you know, the co because there's so much information that, hey, I'm going to do this on my own is much more popular than when I had first started. And it's just got to be really hard. I mean, I was talking to guys like, one of my teammates, Raleigh, is uh, races on a Conti team in Europe, and he's just like, I, I wouldn't want to do this by myself. And it's always surprised me the most experienced people still have a coach for those reasons that, I mean, I've put on the podcast a ton of times before of, like, just being able to talk to somebody about it. It's when things are going great, sure, it seems like everybody can do it. When things are awry and you're like, wait, I need somebody, I need to talk to somebody who really knows what I've done for the past two months. Um just have have somebody else watching your stuff um i don't know that's so you did bring up an interesting uh word about marketing and i know one thing that i'll get asked about and that is marketed big time is vla max do we want to segment into a brief conversation about that because yeah that was that was a smooth segment <laughs> you made there <laughs> thank you excuse me that that's my uh remaining covid coffee you heard uh that i was talking about before um I, you know, there's just things out there that are 
going back to being hyper-focused on one metric. And one metric that, to be honest, I think can be very confusing for people because they're seeing it and they're being told, hey, this is what Walt Benart is doing and Matthew Vanderpoel, they're focusing on this one metric and this is why they're an amazing cyclist. And I think it's easy to select some great athletes and pin something on them and then sort of package it up and sell it. And I, I, I think the conversation becomes confusing because it's not something that most athletes can go out and measure. And I don't even mean measure with, uh, you know, you go take, get a lactate test done for FTP or something that's relatively similar. You could do like a 20 minute testing, get in the ballpark. And then you could even go on Strava and I'm sure get a, I think they have a FTP estimator maybe, or you could get WKO. There's a million ways that you could get in the ballpark of FTP. VLA max, it's way more not available, um, much less available to people. And then we're using a computer algorithm that I have heard. And I don't know if you would agree with this, like coaches don't all agree that this is even able to be estimated by using just power data. Um, so I don't know, it, it, the conversation gets murky. And so I'm very upfront with the athletes of like, Hey, listen, these are the numbers that I have access to. Got to kind of take them with a grain of salt because I've even done training to test this on myself of reducing or increasing VLA max with me being more of a glycolytic athlete and trying to keep it lower and more aerobic in my training. And it doesn't always shift in the, in the, not the right way, but in the right duration of time, like something seemed to happen much quicker than they should physiologically. And I just question it. And, um, I don't know what's, how do you look at VLA max? What do you, do you use it at all to guide coaching? Do you, what way would you pick up on this metric, whether it's specific testing, specific apps, or maybe something I don't know about on the computer? What's your kind of, that's a huge question, but what's the Tom Bell overarching VLA max thoughts? Um, I think it, it's been around, um, maybe, maybe that exact term hasn't been around for, for too long. It kind of started getting talked about, um, over the last couple of years, but it's been, it's been sort of looked at for quite a while. I mean, Maida's research, which I think is primarily where a lot of this comes from has, has been around for, a, a, for decades really. Um, so it's, it's been, you know, that maximal sort of glycolytic rate or lactate building rate has been, you know, people have been looking at that for a while. And then this kind of term VLA max kind of came into, into the media, I suppose, in a similar way to like FTP sort of, you know, quickly sort of gained in popularity. And then it, it's spread like wildfire and lots, lots more people sort of know the term. I think the same thing happened with with VLA max. And um, when it did start getting talked about, I thought it was an interesting you know, an interesting thing to, to try and look into. Um, and, 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 and sort of the, the writing about it and how, and it's uh, the way it was explained about how it, you know, shifting it down can mean this and shifting it up can mean this. It's potentially a quite an interesting sort of metric to, to judge how, you know, which way your physiology is going, um, and which way it should be going for what, for whatever you're preparing for. Um, but, and I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm um, at all like a total expert on everything that goes into into VLA Max, but from what I understand, 
I can't really, I don't see a great deal of practical use for that, for that metric. Um, from a, from a repeatability perspective, you can do tech, you know, run through some tests by some, um, some different that some different companies have uh, produced and not get repeatable results from almost for you know from the same athlete in a very short space of time um it's i think you alluded to it before it's a very sort of precise metric and what it's trying to do is tell you what your lactate building rate or lactate production rate is and there's just no real way that's always basically always going to be estimated um there's no way to just there's no way currently to directly measure what someone's lactate production rate is because if you measure it via a lactate sample from an earlobe or a fingertip you're, you're measuring accumulation there you're not measuring production because it's already it gets produced at the muscle site and then it's getting into the blood where you can measure it and it's being removed and you know it's it's circulating around the body when when you're at this point you're measuring it it's 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 far removed from where it was produced so you're not yes. measuring production um, and someone's that, lactate, that's what the metric is trying to say and someone's lactate clearance rate would affect that if you're good at clearing yeah, lactate precisely. yeah so and that's all that's that's my biggest thing is that there have been some absolutes that have just been printed out there like this is this is x y and z and they're telling athletes that this is like definitive truth. And I'm like, that's not, tr that's not true. That's not real. You, you shouldn't be putting stuff out like that. I think that this metric has had a brings about more questions, which is good. It's, it's creating this conversation. It's, hey, let's talk about the physiological side of how we're producing energy. And I think that even when they're putting on a number as to what your VLA max is, I, I do agree. I have had very inconsistent readings on myself and multiple athletes. That's why I actually stopped using certain products with athletes because it, I didn't find it to be reliable. Um, we did, I don't think it was a waste of time. We learned some interesting things, but I more think it's one of those metrics that you, I'm torn if you can even compare it like an athlete every few months because there are inconsistent readings, but you know, it'd be great if down the road we could say, even if we don't know the exact rate or if it's at a, exactly precise, if we could have a trend line of, Hey, you're going to a lower VLA max, meaning you're becoming more aerobic. You're having more energy produced aerobically, less glycolytic energy. So hopefully this might help you out in long endurance events or just the opposite. Hey, you're really struggling with surges, really struggling with hard efforts. You're at a point, whatever, point three, we'll say, and have it on this zero to one scale. Let's try to get you to a point five. But I think putting these values on, this is a time trialist. This is a grand tour rider. This is a, you know, these phenotypes. I don't know if that's really accurate. And I think it can, it doesn't always clarify the, clear the water. I think it might make it a little bit more murkier at times. So, yeah. 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 I think, I think potentially so. Um, I think, I think it ultimately, it's just too precise. It's just too, trying to be too precise of a metric when you're actually not directly measuring what it's, what it's trying to tell you. Um, and that's, you make a really interesting point about how you're getting production rates 
because you do more lot. I don't even do lactate testing on the athletes. I don't live in the city where my athletes are. And I know you've talked to me about getting lactate tested, but that's a really good point. I mean, even lactate test, if you're doing it for FTP is not at the muscle site where it's being produced. So there's a lot of other things going on in the body. Um, didn't mean to cut you off there, but that really jumped out to me as like a, I wonder, I wonder if this is even feasible. Like you'd have to be, yeah. I mean, how would they do that in a lab? Maybe. I, I don't exactly. That that's that's always been my sort of issue. And I mean, you can look at things that are more accepted, like like having a VO two max test where you've got like measured gas exchange, you know, with a mask, and that even has um, you know very uh, that even has you know margins of error associated with it, just like a power meter does, you know, like two two percent, one or two percent. It's higher for a VO two max test, so. A, so even if you look at that and say we are actually directly measuring gas exchange here, but there's a there's a device you know error margin there that mm -hmm. if you if so if you're an elite athlete for instance and you're trying to measure your improvements in VO2 max and you're up, you're right there at your sort of potential, you, changes might be so small that you, they can't really be detected in uh, in that margin of error. And when you take it back to VLA max, you're, you, you're a step removed from what you're trying to actually measure. And then if you then remove it even further and you don't even bother with lactate data and you just use power data, now you're like using population models that are built up from lactate data that, you know, they're essentially looking at like, how does this power relate to the power that these athletes that had lactate measured? How does that, how does this relate? And then those athletes that had lactate measured, that's not even potentially telling you the right thing anyway. So uh, it just adds a lot of murkiness there. And if you're looking at 0.6 to a 0.7 change, that's, that's, <laughs> I don't know how you can sort of, uh, you know, hold the two things together when you've got so much variance, but then the, this individual metric you're trying to use is, uh, is so, you know, so sensitive to changes. And the one thing that my first coach told me when I was talking to him about getting lactate tested, and this was back in 2012, and he had said, well, make sure you're getting the same person because the way, I guess this, I never thought about this until now. He's like, the way someone draws, that's going to affect, like, if they're very fast, and then you go to someone who's slower, I don't even know how the lactate drawing really works, like the pinprick to the, to the thing you put it onto. He's like, if there's a time difference, it, you're going to get different readings. So, like, don't go get tested here and then go get a lactate test here go to the same person because it's going to be the method actually matters is that true yeah i mean if yeah. you yeah so you could you could take it from dif different sites so the earlobe versus the fingertip the way that you actually squeeze the blood out you know the amount yeah. of sweat that gets into the sample how how hard you squeeze you know can all these things can affect can affect that and i would say as well just on a wider point there's inherent problems with lactate testing just generally anyway like it's very protocol specific uh, so mm -hmm. if you lengthen the steps of a ramp test for instance you're going to get different readings mm -hmm. um your diet affects you the amount of lactate you produce you know lactate lactate testing itself is you, you, there you're measuring lactate which again is removed from like you know that's just a byproduct of energy production so it's uh it, lactate testing isn't perfect either. I mean, we use like uh, a Moxie device as well to look at kind of, because the idea with that is it looks at 
SMO2 or satu the saturated um, you know, muscle oxygen. So how much of the hemoglobin in the blood in the capillaries is oxygenated versus deoxygenated? So how much oxygen is the muscle pulling from the blood? And that's more, you know, that's that's a little bit closer than lactate. So, you know, you're getting slightly more towards the source of all these things. So even lactate is sort of not perfect and almost sort of looked at by, especially by people who are quite into um, SMO2 uh, and these kinds of things as almost like a dying art or an inferior way of looking at um, uh, metabolism than, uh, than, than lactate, uh, sorry, yeah, than, than like other methods. So, yeah. Well, so I think this is to, to wrap this up in the, uh, essence of time. I think the best thing that you said to me was when we were chatting about using WKO, when we're talking about anaerobic power or athletes that use WKO know the term FRC. And I had said to you, you know, how much I think I can't remember if mine had gone down a little bit, or we were just talking about general training concepts when we first linked up. And you had said one thing that I think is great for everybody to hear because it's very applicable to training or I guess said differently, it's a way to step away from the metrics and be very real world with yourself as the athlete. And you said, do you struggle with surges? I said, no, definitely not. And you're like, well, then you really don't need to train that. Right. And I was like, well, do we, but do we care about the metric? And you said, well, if your FTP in WKO dropped, would you go start doing FTP intervals? And I laughed. And I was like, huh, it's, you don't think of it, but that's the exact same thing. Like people see their FRC drop and they're like, I, I have my anaerobic power. It's down. Like the algorithm's off or like, what, ah, I need to go harder. It's like, wait, how are you doing in the races? You know? And I think sometimes I, I love the data. I love the tools. I love the programs. And I think it's just very easy for us all as athletes. And especially when we're self-coaching to just get, sucked into it and not step back and say, wait, how am I doing these races? You know what? I really am not struggling in surges. You know, I don't need to become more glycolytic, have more anaerobic power. Let me keep working on this aerobic stuff or just the opposite, man. I keep getting dropped on the, this course we do all the time, whatever these 30 second surges or these rapid attacks that, you know, don't worry just what the algorithm is telling you. Look at how the events are going. Um, yeah, I think um, I think you can sometimes put the metrics before the performance. And actually, what you're trying to do is you're trying to improve your performance. And metrics are a way to to help you to. So if you if you sort of say I need to improve X, Y, and Z elements of my, you know, how I race or um, you know these types of efforts or whatever because they're related to higher performance in these races. You can then work backwards to say, okay, what training should I, you know, with my understanding of physiology and all this kind of stuff, what training should I do to, to, that's going to help me to improve these critical aspects of my performance and what metrics can I use to potentially help me to track those improvements? Um, so putting it, it, looking at trying to, trying to get the metrics higher and higher, if it, that's fine, but if it doesn't then actually relate to to real world performance then you're almost putting the cart before the horse really mm -hmm. uh, and i think another thing just to say broadly is don't hinge everything on one one metric you, you can put you need to put them all together to create a wider picture and you can't 
no what no one of these metrics or numbers is going to be watertight there's always margins of error associated with them and especially with modeling software with wko you need to be you need to give it up-to-date data and have a properly shaped power duration curve for it to even be accurate in its estimations anyway so you have to take these metrics with a grain of salt and put them all together and and put that in and bring perform you know performance and your own feelings into the picture as well and say okay looking at this landscape from like a you know um you know up above the trees looking down what do i think i still need to work on and what are the best ways to do this and potentially which are the metrics that are going to maybe guide me in understanding if the training is having the desired effect or not and then this is like a this is just a waterfall that keeps going because then another piece of that is <coughs> excuse me having wko can only give you the outputs based on the input that you put in but then if you see a metric change an athlete's going to want to go input new data and it's it's uh cody stevenson from training peaks was talking to me about some athletes are out there training for these algorithms. It's like the algorithm changes. And I said to you one time, I said, well, don't you think we need to put fresh data on the curve? And you're like, but there's an opportunity cost that we're going to waste a training session on just going out and doing this maximal effort when your feelings are that you're riding well, you're like, you're good with that. Let's continue training. Let's not feed the algorithm. Let's not worry about that. The curve might be a little bit off. We don't need that. We don't need to be validated by WKO's output let's keep on our trajectory where we're going. And if I, I can't remember this specific example, but it might've been even FRC, like, Hey, do you think I need to go crank out a one minute effort? And you're like, no, let's do, you need to work on lactate clearance. Let's keep going with that direction. And I think it's, I used to test after rest weeks, I would have athletes kind of fill missing gaps and holes. And I got away from that because number one, I, Yes, I think while it's important to take the output from WKO, I'm much more listening to where are they feeling like they're lacking in the races and rides and training and having someone start up and just go out and crank out these maximal efforts physiologically might be exactly what they don't need. And so to have an athlete go out and just not that one session is going to change their physiology or something, but I just think that keep the training flow going in the direction that you truly need and don't let the algorithms hang you up. So I think even that is a fine line of like, what input are you giving it? Don't always input it just because something changed after like the 90 day window and something fell off. And that could be a whole other discussion of like the 90 day window. That's a really big window. Um, a lot of changes in three months. So yeah this was this was good man um any final thoughts any uh anything i brought up that you didn't get to chime in sometimes i just get rolling here oh, no that's fine <laughs> um no i think uh i think it's just as i said i think it's important for people not to just hinge hinge everything on uh on on one or two uh numbers mm -hmm. or, or or metrics understand just understand that every every one of those has inherent limitations and uh and and I think a blessing and a curse with cycling is that you can just get so much data from it, you know, compared to sports like running um, uh, and and plenty of other sports, you can just get so much data from, from a bike um, that that's great because if you can make sense of the data and understand what to, 
what to focus on and what to maybe just leave by the wayside because it's just not worth your effort sort of looking at but um so, so yeah it can be it it can really be a great thing that you've got so much data to look at and so many things to track but it can just uh leave you with analysis paralysis and yes. uh, just leave you scratching your head thinking like what do I need to do next when it can actually you know sometimes simplifying things down um using the metrics that and numbers that uh are important to you and using them in a good way but but also just keeping things fairly simple sometimes i think you go on this whether you're a coach or an athlete interested in in uh, in, in performance and physiology and all the all the data is you can go on this kind of arc of like you don't really understand anything and then suddenly you'd like start learning about all these terms and you're fascinated with them and you think that you know ftp or this and that is like the 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 you know the track to you know, the, the way to understanding how to really improve and then and then i think as you get wiser and understand things a bit more over time you start to understand that they all have limitations they all may or may not be able to tell you certain things and ultimately ultimately you're chasing higher performance so it's how you use those in pursuit of that and maybe not just chasing uh, one number going up one number going down um it, although that's fun as well if you don't if you you know if you don't race and you just want you know people get very motivated by seeing sort of what what you might call hard evidence of like you know improvements or seeing things go move move in a certain direction so i don't know that, it, that yeah. is the the quote-unquote hard evidence it's always amazing when an athlete's ftp stays the same and then they go do an event they're like holy crap i've never finished so strong i'm like that, you know, and I don't even go into like, oh, that's your time to exhaustion. It's just, that's your, you're way more resilient of a rider. You can put out your FTP way longer and that now you just have this bigger engine that allows you to have more hard efforts. Like there's just all these pieces that come into play and uh, yeah. And they really, I think there's been a lot of interesting research recently by, um, uh, by people like James Sprague and Peter Leo on um, not necessarily see, you know, not not looking at necessarily what your threshold is in a test or you know when you're fresh but actually looking at what you can produce after a sustained period of you know a certain kilo amount of kilojoules burnt or a certain um just amount of riding and racing that you've already done in that event because as we know race winning moves and performances are often dictated by what happens late in the later stages and it's it's sometimes who can hang on the longest and that's often not related to what you can do fresh it's your fatigue resistance durability whatever you want to call it um and you can see as you as you rightly said there there's plenty of athletes who don't really see their ftp or their uh, whatever sort of threshold measure they're using move too much but their performance go in, in races goes through the roof because there's other components to it especially this like your threshold after x amount of kilojoules mm -hmm. um yeah, which i think is always an interesting threshold. ride i haven't done in a while but was doing like uh 10 minute efforts at a thousand kjs two thousand kjs three thousand kjs four thousand kjs and even for athletes that struggle to do longer rides they may not enjoy them just 10 minute efforts max paced like don't explode but what can i do for 10 minutes also getting that feeling down of when you're deep in a ride and you're like oof i'm gonna you know don't explode three minutes in trying to do whatever number 
but maybe it's 10, maybe it's only 10 months less. And when you learn that having that card in your back pocket on race day is huge, I think. And, um, yeah, so many non or less trackable things going on to do well in an endurance event. And really in the U S I think it's going to become more popular as more athletes are getting into gravel and uh, crits are still very, very popular, but with road racing kind of going away, gravel becoming very, I shouldn't say going away, changing a little bit, more people are doing really long efforts and seeing like, whoa, I was good at two hour events. These four hour events, five hour and six hour events require a lot more. Um, so, well, man, Tom Bell, High North Coaching, Brendan Hauser, Evoke Bike. This was awesome. We'll have to find another topic and do another one soon. And um, thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem at all. Always a pleasure. Uh, I feel like we could have just rolled straight into another hour's discussion at the end there. So Easy, don't think we'll be, uh, I don't think we'll be starved of topics. Put it that- uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. If you're on the podcast, please leave us a five-star review. We greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're watching on YouTube, please give us a thumbs up and subscribe. That helps All the algorithms know that this is a worthwhile show for others to enjoy. Thanks again, Tom, and hope you guys all have a great day training and racing.